scripture reading for this morning will be Revelation chapter 5. And in the uh, books there in the seats in front of you, that's on page 1030, 1030. Let's read God's word. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the back side sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof. And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look up thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book, and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four beasts, in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials of odors, which are the prayers of saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and has made us unto, the, unto God and priests, we shall reign on the earth. Unto God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such are in the, air, in the sea, and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we do thank you for your word this morning. Father, we thank you for your love and your goodness to us. We just pray, God, that you would uh, be with our pastor this morning as he shares your word. You would give him strength. You would give him clarity. Lord, to uh, speak your word. Help us to understand, Father, that we might draw close to you. Pray, God, if there be one here today that knows you not, they might come to know you as Lord and Savior before they leave. Father, we'll just give you the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.
can steal that from me. Well, our theme all month long has been the supreme worth of the Lord Jesus Christ or the supremacy of Jesus Christ. We are continuing with that theme this morning uh, by directing our attention to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5 is actually a continuation of Revelation chapter 4. Both those chapters go together. and It's it's a vision of the throne room of heaven. Uh, and In a sense, uh, heaven, the veils kind of peeled back a little bit and we get a glimpse in. And in Revelation 4 and Revelation 5, we have God the Father seated on the throne. And surrounding God the Father are angels that are 24-7 falling face down saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Proclaiming that over and over, who was and is is and is to come, and there's the living creatures and the 24 elders, and we just read in chapter 5 about the the mighty angel. Uh, There's also this lion who's also a lamb, right? And there's the apostle John. And from this passage, we, chapter 5 in particular, we see lots of reasons, uh, lots of evidences of the supreme worth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm just going to point out three of them. There's a lot more than that, but I'm just going to point out three of them this morning, and then I'm going to direct the application uh, towards reaching uh, unreached people groups, and we'll explain what that is as we go forward. But if you're taking notes, the, the first uh, reason or point or idea behind the supremacy of, the word, supremacy of Jesus Christ is that Jesus is sovereign over history. He is sovereign over history. And with verse 1, John sees God the Father sitting on his throne. And just as a kind of a side note, that word throne occurs over 40 times in the book of Revelation. So many have actually nicknamed or titled Revelation the throne book room because it just constantly references the throne and the throne and the throne. And the throne is, of course, a, a place of sovereignty, a place of authority, and, and sitting on the palm of uh, God the Father's right hand is this mysterious scroll, right? What's that scroll all about? It says that, verse 1, that the scroll is written within and on the back, so there's, it's filled to the edge with information. There's, there's no room for anything to be added. And then it's sealed with seven seals. So, so what's that all about, right? And as I'm sure you can imagine, there have been many uh, suggestions, many thoughts, many ideas put forward. Uh, many have argued that it was a title deed to the earth, Uh, Some say it's a last will and testament. In fact, there's historical evidence that uh, in the Roman Empire, when they would do last will and testaments, they would seal it six to seven times. Uh, So that might be very well what it is. Others have argued it's the Old Testament Torah. Uh, Still others argue, based on Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, that it's Ezekiel's book of lamentation and mourning and woe. I personally think each each one of those has warrant. Uh, But I also personally think it's a little bit simpler than that. I think that scroll is simply the rest of the book of Revelation. Uh, and there's a lot I could say to try and play, to, to draw that out. It's just, that's just not my focus this morning. Uh, but in saying that, in, that it is that, that it is the rest of the book of Revelation, I think it's safe to say that what the significance of that scroll is that it includes or contains the ultimate goal or end of all of history. That's the significance of that scroll. 
It includes judgment and blessing. It, it contains the fulfillment of all of history. How things will ultimately end for all people. Judgment for the world, salvation for those who place their faith in Christ. It contains the, the consummation of all things, the restoration of the world, the, the completion of God's glorious redemption plan, his, his awesome plan to judge sin and culminate all things in victory with his kingdom. Now John sees a second thing in verse 2. He sees this mighty angel, or you could say a mega angel with a mega voice. And he's shouting out with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Who is worthy to come forth and execute God's final plan, his, his, his future plans of consummation and, and judgment for all of the rest of humanity and, and history in the world? Who, who is worthy to bring things to their intended end? And verse 3 says, No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to break the scroll or to look into it. So the idea there is a universal search happens, right? And they search everywhere. They look, look everywhere for one who is worthy to come forth and break the seals, take the scroll and break the seals. And no one is found worthy. That's significant, isn't it? That's very interesting. I'm sure there were many who were willing, but none who were worthy. It wasn't a matter of willingness, but a matter, a matter of worthiness. The fact that no one is able to open the scroll or look into it causes John to, verse 4, begin to weep loudly. It brings him great sorrow. He kept on shedding tears. It's almost as if uh, the more the search went on and the more vain it was, that the deeper and greater his sorrow became. We might ask or wonder, why, why does John weep so? Why, why does he weep so, so strongly? And again, remember what the scroll contains. The scroll contains God's future uh, plans and purposes to restore all things. And so John weeps with disappointment and great sorrow because the hope of all things being made new, the, the hope of all evil and wickedness being judged, the hope of the inheritance of the saints, the, the hope of a new heaven and new earth, it's all postponed until that scroll can be opened. And so John weeps. He's weeping because he wonders and he questions, will God's purposes be worked out? Will God's redemption plan be completed? Will this world forever be caught in, in hate and sin and evil and wickedness? Will this world forever be caught in war and, and poverty and racism and violence and crime and, and perversion and, and unbelief? I, I think if you just think about that for a few minutes, you can resonate with John, yes? As, as, as you live in this world, as, as you watch the news, as, as, you, as life uh, continues on, do you ever feel like crying because of the outright evil? In our world. And you wonder, how's anything going to make sense out of all this? Where is this headed, right? 
See, that's, that's the thought. That, that's what's going on there with John, because that scroll contains God's purposes to bring all things to their intended end, but no one's worthy to open it. And so John weeps because it means, is this going to go on like this forever? And of course, with verse 5, uh, we, we have this elder who comes to John and commands him, weep no more. Stop weeping. And look, b- behold, he says in, in verse 5, the lion of the tribe of Judah, which is a, a reference to Genesis 49, 9 through 10, and speaks of, of kingly authority, but also the root of David, which is a reference to Isaiah 11 and uh, how Jesus is uh, the root that existed before David. This, this line of the tribe of Judah, this root of David, has conquered. Like this kind of neat, the, has no connection with modern day sneakers named Nike, but the Greek word there is Nike. I have no idea what Nike means or why they named their shoes Nike, but whenever you think or see Nike from here on out, think Christ who has conquered. Don't think the shoe, think Jesus who has conquered. That, that's what that word means there in, in the Greek, Nike. It means to conquer, to prevail, uh, to, to triumph, to overcome. And so that, that's the idea. This, don't weep anymore, John. The line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has conquered, he has triumphed, he has prevailed, he has overcome. He can open the scroll and its seven seals. So let your, your mourning and your groaning and your weeping cease because Jesus, this lamb, this lion, uh, has conquered. There's no place for despair. There is hope. There's a fix. And it's not money. It's not science. It's not philosophy. It is Christ. And so he is sovereign over history. He is God's uh, one uh, to bring all things to their intended telos or purpose or end or goal. The second reason in which Jesus is worthy is because he is the slaughtered lamb. He is the slaughtered lamb. Uh, Verse 5, or I'm sorry, verse 6 kind of might throw you because after that description in verse 5 of this lion of the tribe of Judeo, kingly authority, suddenly in verse 6 you have a lamb. That's not what you're expecting, right? As, as you're reading through it, this, this king, this kingly lion, authority and power, then all of a sudden, a lamb. And not just any kind of lamb. The, 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 the Greek word indicates it's, it's a very, very, very young. It's like a pet lamb. This picture of meekness and gentleness and weakness. That's the lamb in the center of the throne, surrounded by the four living creatures and among the elders, this lamb that is standing. Of course, we know that lamb is a metaphor for the Lord Jesus Christ. The the image or theme of lamb is rich throughout Scripture. I encourage you to study that much. Uh, If you remember in Genesis chapter 22, uh, you have Abraham and Isaac, and he's taking him up the mountain and Isaac asks, where's, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham's response to that is, well, God will provide the lamb for burnt offering. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord provides. 
In Exodus chapter 12, you have the Passover lamb, and El talked about that last week, how that lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. And in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7, the prophet Isaiah talks about a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. In John 1.29, John the Baptist proclaims, Behold, what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, we are taught that we have been bought, we've been saved, redeemed, uh, with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. And so all those, all those images, that theme, it finds its climax here in chapter 5, verse 6, where you have this lamb, the lamb of Revelation chapter 6. And it's, it's very, very interesting. In the Old Testament, you have Isaac asking, where's the lamb? And in, in John, you have John the Baptist saying, behold, the lamb of God. And then in Revelation 6, you have, worthy is the lamb of God. And so this rich theme of the lamb, and Jesus is worthy of praise he is of supreme worth because he is this slaughtered lamb, right? It says, I saw a lamb, verse 6, standing as though it had been slain. Uh, so it has all the marks of, of having lost its life in sacrifice. And yet, though slaughtered, it stands. It's standing at the center of the throne room. This is a clear picture of Jesus' death and his resurrection. Though he was dead, though on the cross he was rejected, thirsty, tired, subjected to immense cruelty and agony and hatred, he died a criminal's death, he is now standing, he is now very much alive. Again, verse 5, truly he has conquered Truly he has overcome. Truly he's overcome sin and Satan. He is victorious. And as the victorious one, we kind of get this, this weird, strange picture of him because it says in verse 6 that he has seven horns. You're like, what's that all about, right? Well, seven is that picture of perfection. Horns is a picture of strength. So the idea is there he has fullness of strength. He's almighty. He's all-powerful. Then it goes on to say, not only, not only does he have seven horns, but he has seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So again, seven means fullness or perfection. The idea of eyes means seeing or wisdom. And so Jesus is not only almighty and all-powerful, he is all-knowing. He sees all. Nothing uh, misses his glance. He knows it all. He sees it all. The picture then of Jesus Christ is this, this lamb who's a conqueror, all-powerful, all-knowing, and he's won that victory through his death and resurrection. Now notice what he does in verse 7. In verse 7 it says, And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Without any hesitation, this lamb walks right up to that throne and takes that scroll. It's a powerful image. It is evident uh, that he is worthy, and he alone is worthy. Judgment and power over earth, over history, the consummation of all things is, is committed to him. It is through Christ that the Father will accomplish all of his purposes. 
Do you see then from our text in the slaughtered lamb that Jesus is the theme of heaven? And that heaven is, and I, I shared this a little bit last week, heaven is Christocentric. Where is the lamb in verse 6? He's right in the center of heaven, right in the center of that throne room. And he walks up, he takes that scroll, he is uh, the center of heaven, of heaven. He is the center of everything. All of heaven revolves around him. And that's a good place to pause and, and think and ask yourself that question I've been asking you all month long. Is Jesus the center of your life? Is he preeminent in your life? Are there areas of your life where his preeminence has, has faded? Is Jesus first and foremost in your thought life? Or as you have your, your business dealings, how about your marriage? Is he the center of your marriage? Is he at the center of how you spend your money and use your money and save your money? Do you think about Jesus as you spend your money and use your money and save your money? Again, is, how often is he on your thoughts? Is he on your thoughts as you're having conversations? Is he coming out of your mouth as you have conversations? How about your entertainment as, as you watch things or as you're on social media? Uh, is, is Christ the center of your entertainment? How are you spending your life? It's so easy to get caught up in, in this world and the culture in which we live. Are you Christ-centered? Is he the center of all that you say and do and think? The third reason uh, why Jesus is worthy, has supreme worth is and the way I worded it is, he opened heaven's gates. Uh, so he's worthy because he's sovereign over history. He's worthy because he's the sovereign lamb, or the slaughtered lamb, the center of heaven. He's worthy because he opened heaven's gates. So verse 7, Jesus takes the scroll, and what happens in verses 8 through 14? It's an, a, a breakout in worship, right? It's, you have three different scenes. You have in verses 8 through 10, this song sung by the elders, the 24 elders, who, who most likely are, are illustrative of uh, church saints or, or even the people of God uh, from, from Genesis to, to whenever the Lord returns. Uh, but you see, so you have this sung, song sung by the saints in verses 8 through 10. Then in verses 11 and 12, you have an innumerable amount of angels who break out in praise and sing with a loud voice. And then in verses 13 and 14, all of creation joins in. Uh, and the only way I could kind of think to picture that in my mind, if this helps you, is, is if, if you're at, or if you see on TV, uh, a football stadium, and at the center of that stadium uh, is the players on the field. So let's say the center of that stadium is the throne room. That's where Christ and those 24 elders and the one sitting on the throne are. Then you have the, the elders surrounding, and so the, the camera kind of pans back, right? And, and so then you have the angels who are seated in the stands, right? And the, the camera kind of pans it and shows this innumerable host of, of angels praising him. And then, then the camera pans even farther back, right? All the way back so that you see all of creation, every creature uh, singing praise of the worthiness of the Lord Jesus Christ. For this morning, I'm just going to zero in on verses 8 through 10, the first song that's sung. And in verses 8 through 10, we see that Jesus is declared to be worthy uh, for three reasons. 
Uh, notice in verse 9, it says, They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? For you were slain. So why is Jesus worthy to take the scroll? Because he was slain. Again, that's a reference to his death on the cross. He defeated sin by offering himself as the sacrifice for sin. I just want to pause and, and point something out here again. Notice at the center of praise, the center of worship in heaven is the cross. Right? Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Uh, I'm sorry, that's verse 12. <clears throat> Backing to verse 9. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. So again, the, the heartbeat of their worship is the cross. And that needs to be the heartbeat of our worship, yes? If heaven is so highly, or if the cross is so highly regarded in heaven, can we not, should we not do the same here? We should think much about the cross, and we should preach much about the cross. The, the theme and anthem of all that we say and do should be the cross. If, if you're here and I can never get through a sermon and not mention the cross, that's no good. The cross is the center of it all. We're a Christ, Christ and cross-centered church. And that's the first reason why Jesus was worthy. He was slain. The second reason why he was worthy, it goes on to say, he was slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So the second reason why, why they say he's worthy is he ransomed people for God, which is to say he purchased us. And how did he purchase us? What's it say? It says, by his blood. This is how we are saved. This is the heart of the gospel and the heart of the cross, the heart of what Christianity is. It's the reason why we're gathered here this morning, the blood of the cross. We're not saved by good works or trying to do our best or trying to measure up. We're saved by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross who shed his blood. A bloodless gospel is no gospel. The scriptures say without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. As, as we often sing, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We are ransomed, we are bought, we are purchased by the blood. My sin, your sin, separates us from God. That sin uh, captivates us. Uh, we are dead in our sin. We're under the control of sin apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ. But Jesus paid that price on the cross to win us, to redeem us. He paid that penalty of sin. Now notice his work in verse 9. His, his blood says, You ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So notice that's why I titled this point, He Opened Heaven's Gates. The redeemed, those whom he purchased, come out of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. Tribe, language, people, nation. That's a rich Old Testament theme again. 
uh, is tied to Psalm 2.8. Psalm 2.8, uh, the father says to his son, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. It's also tied all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. Remember the Abrahamic covenant? And the promise that God makes to Abraham, he calls him out, and he says to him, among other things, that through you, all the what? All the families of the earth will be blessed. Do you see the connection from Genesis 12, verse 3, to Psalm 2, 8, all the way to, to Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, where, where Jesus is worthy because by his blood he ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Now please, please hear this because this says something about the great and ultimate purpose of God. The gospel will be received by some from every language, from every location on earth. Please hear this. Jesus didn't die simply to make salvation possible. Jesus died to secure salvation, to make it certain for people from every tribe and language and people and nation. Notice the verse does not say in verse 9 that you ransom people from God uh, from every tribe and language and people and nation. It doesn't say you ransom people uh, for God so that they might have salvation possible. It speaks in very certain language, doesn't it? It says, you ransomed them, you bought them, you purchased them. By his blood, he made salvation certain. All families of the earth will be blessed. There will be evangelistic fruit from every people on earth because the Son particularly redeemed sinners from every know Jesus. They've never heard about him. That's what a UPG is, an unreached people group. To say it another way, it's, it's not that they can hear the gospel, and it's, it's not that they've heard the gospel and rejected it. No, these are people who can't even hear the gospel because no one around them even knows what the gospel is. That's what a UPG is. That's an unreached people group. And uh, we're going to watch a couple videos. They're just two, three minutes long to kind of overview that for you and get more of an idea of what a UPG is. What is a UPG? UPG stands for Unreached People Group, but to understand what that means, we need to first talk about people groups. When Jesus told his followers, go and make disciples of all nations, the Greek words he used were ta ethne, meaning all ethnic groups or people groups. So what is a people group? A people group is basically a group of individuals that have a common sense of history, language, beliefs, and identity. It is pretty much a group of people that considers us, us, and everyone else, them. While there are about 196 countries in the world today, there are over 16,000 distinct people groups. Let's look at Pakistan as an example. That is one nation going by our English word, but ethnically Pakistan has over 400 distinct nations or people groups within its borders. Around 7,000 of those 16,000 total people groups are considered UPGs, or unreached people groups. A group is considered unreached if less than 2% of their population is evangelical Christian. That is, it has too few true believers to evangelize and disciple the rest of the people group. Almost 3 billion people fall into this category. 
Over 3,000 of those 7,000 unreached people groups are considered UUPGs, or unengaged unreached people groups. These people groups have no churches, no believers, no missionaries, and no one actively focused on engaging them. 95% of all unreached people groups are located in the part of the world between 10 degrees latitude and 40 degrees latitude stretching from North Africa to Southeast Asia. We call this the 1040 window. It's in the 1040 window that most of the major non-Christian religions hold sway. Collectively, they are known as the Thumb People, tribal, Hindu, unreligious, including many Chinese, Muslim, and Buddhist. Jesus said that the gospel of the kingdom would be preached as a testimony to Ta Ethne, all people groups, and then the end would come. Less than 3% of our total cross-cultural missionary force is working with unreached people groups. We must go to the unreached. At the same time, it's estimated that over 350 unreached people groups are living in the United States today as immigrants, refugees, and international students. We must welcome the unreached. Christ commands us to make disciples of all nations. Jesus is alive. His mission for us is clear, yet the task stands incomplete. Together, we can change that. If you run in Christian circles, you've probably heard people talk about the lost and the unreached. These are two common terms that Christians use to describe people who aren't followers of Jesus. But where do these terms come from, and what's the difference between the two of them? The term lost comes from a few references in the Bible. According to scripture, all people are born lost. It is a universal symptom of the fall. God created people to be in a right relationship with him. Sin entered the world through Adam and Eve and created a separation between man and God. Jesus said he came to seek and save that which was lost. He came like a beacon, offering to rescue anyone who will admit that they are lost and that he is the way to be found. Those who have not yet received his offer are referred to as lost people. Now the word unreached refers to lost people who will most likely never have the chance to hear that there is a way to be found. People groups are considered unreached when less than 2% of their population is following Jesus. They often have no access to the gospel in their culture or language, which means that they will never encounter the gospel unless something about their environment changes. There are still large numbers of people who have never heard, people who live far away and are hard to reach, or people who are born into societies where the message of Jesus is not one. Followers of Jesus are still working hard to tell everyone that they can be found. But out of all the missionaries who are going and telling, less than 10% of them ever make it to the unreached people of the world. So what is the difference between being lost and being unreached? Well, in a word, access. Everyone who hasn't trusted in Jesus is lost, but not every lost person is unreached. Many lost people can pick up a Bible, walk into a church, ask a friend, search the internet, or even simply wrestle with the things that they've heard about Jesus. 
but unreached people either haven't heard anything about Jesus or don't have the access to material or people who could help answer their questions. It is a big task to bring the message of the gospel to the hardest to reach places. But as the Apostle Paul says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they do not believe? And how will they believe if they haven't heard? And how will they hear without someone preaching? And how will they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. hard to watch because what they're saying is, and those are huge numbers to, to get your mind around, but over three billion people in over 7,000 people groups are unreached by the gospel and headed to a Christless eternity in hell. Three billion. Billions. Said another way, over 40% of the world's population, over 40% of the world's population will be born, live, and die without ever having heard the gospel. Those are huge numbers. We talk a lot about the second coming of Christ while nearly half the world hasn't even heard about his first. We talk about the gospel's good news. Well, the gospel's only good news if what? It gets there in time. Three billion people. And they shared some of this in, in the videos, but you, and you can dig into this, uh, and I could direct you to a few sites that have done a lot of research on this, but churches are spending approximately only 1% to 2% of their resources to reach these three billion people who haven't heard the gospel. That's it. For every $100,000 that a Christian makes, they give roughly $1 to reach the unreached. In terms of missionaries being sent out into the world, only 3% roughly are going to unreached people groups. Only 3%, and yet 3 billion. Sometimes we give Israel a hard time because they had all those years to, uh, to conquer the promised land, right? And if you look in the back of your Bible, Israel, that land, the promised land, it's not, it's not that big, but they never do quite manage to get all that land. Read, read through Joshua and Judges and, and all that happens there, and we wonder, man, Israel, come on, why, why didn't you believe the promise and conquer that land? But then, let's put it in perspective, it's been 2,000 years since the Lord Jesus Christ ascended back into heaven and he gave us the commission to go into all the ta'ethne, all, the ta all the nations, and make disciples. It's been 2,000 years, and we got 3 billion people who are unreached. Never even, most likely, heard the name of Jesus. In 1896... In Atlanta, Georgia, there was a man uh, working in his laboratory mixing together water and flavoring and sugar. And he invented a drink that many of us enjoy. It's called Coca-Cola. It cost him roughly $70 to develop and market his product, 
but his first year he only made $50, so he's actually under by 20, he's 20 in the red, and that's a major financial loss. $20 loss might not seem like much in today, but in 1896, to be $20 in the red was, was tough. But he pressed on, he continued to sell his product, he figured out a way to bottle it, so more people could have access to his drink, enjoy it at home, go on picnics, the popularity of it grows. Today, over 100 years later, 94% of the world knows Coca-Cola. Now this one stings because three billion don't know the name Jesus. But for the sake of profit, Coca-Cola has managed to get itself 94% into the world. Man, we got something way better than profit. We have Jesus, and yet three billion have yet to even know who he is. Coca-Cola's outdoing us. And they don't have Jesus, they don't have the Spirit, they don't have the Word. I think you can see from that that we're imbalanced, yes? We're imbalanced in our emphasis, I'm not in any way uh, tearing down or saying anything bad about uh, those who are working with, with reached. That's a vital work. Uh, right? There's Paul and there's Timothy, right? Paul's mostly pioneer work, but Paul trains up Timothy and Titus who are most, mostly reached, working with rich people, right? There's, there's got to be both. Both are vitally important, but we are imbalanced. And I think when we read Revelation 5, 9, if that wasn't true, we would have great reason to not have hope. But because of Revelation 5.9 and the worthiness of Christ and his shed blood, who will have the reward of his sacrifice, that verse should put fire in our bones. Confidence in the gospel to go to these unreached people groups. And there's, there's one individual I'd like to share with you about this morning who did exactly that. One man who, because he believed the supreme worth of Jesus Christ, was used in a mighty way uh, in the land of Burma or Myanmar, and his name was Adniram Judson. I'm not sure if, if, if we all have heard of him before. Uh, if you haven't, it'd just be great to study more into him. I, I could give you some resources about him. I can share a little bit about him this morning. But Adniram Judson was his name, and in 1812, uh, him and his wife Anne set out for Burma. Uh, it was a four-month-long boat ride. That's a long boat ride, huh? A four-month-long trip to get over there. And a bulk of what Adoniram was going to be doing was translation work, so he has four months uh, on that boat, and he spends that time uh, translating from the Greek in the New Testament. And Ed and Iram and Anne, as they're heading over there, they're initially congregationalists. And if you know anything about congregationalists, not congregationalism, but congregationalist, the denomination, uh, that they practice what's called pedo-baptism, or sprinkling of infants as baptism. And so here's Ed and Judson, and he's He's working through the New Testament, and he's recognizing he has some things he needs to think about. What do I really believe about baptism? And what you believe about baptism is going to impact your ecclesiology. It's going to impact how you do church. Because if you believe in, in infant baptism and sprinkling of infants, then when are you going to baptize whole families? You know, like in Acts. We see, see some, some interesting examples there. Uh, or what, so again, what, is, what does baptism mean? 
So he spends a long time digging into that, and a surprising thing happened. He becomes convinced uh, that paedo-baptism is unbiblical, and that the, the biblical model of baptism is believers only, and it is by immersion. He becomes deeply convicted of that. Uh, he switches his conviction, and that conviction from infant baptism to believers-only baptism by immersion cost him dearly because, again, the churches that sent him were congregationalists, and that's what they taught. So when they get word, what do they do? They drop him. They defund him. If not for their friend Luther Rice, uh, their work would have ended before it even began. But Rice's efforts, uh, the Baptist Forum was called the Triennial Convention, and the first missionary they send out is Judson. And it's the birth of American missions. The Judsons enter Burma in 1813. Uh, Burma was very hostile, and it was unreached. Uh, the famed William Carey, if you ever heard of him, he's called the father of modern missions. He tells Judson, don't go to Burma. It's too dangerous. He goes anyways. He went there with his 23-year-old wife, and he was 24. He worked there for 38 years. He died at the age of 61, in, actually on a boat ride home. They labored in sweltering heat, 108 degrees. They had constant battles with sickness and disease, such as uh, malaria, dysentery, other, other miseries, cholera. They faced a lot of death. Um, Anne dies, his, his first wife Anne dies, he gets married again, she dies. He gets married a third time, she outlives him. So he loses two wives. Seven of his 13 children die. He has several colleagues who die. In 1823, Adoniram and his wife Anne moved from Rangoon to Ava. While he's there, he's wrongly arrested and put into prison. Some political things going on. What they do in that, in that prison is awful. <laughs> I won't share all the details, but one thing they talk about is they fettered his feet. They did this to all the people who were in prison there, but they, they fettered his feet, and at night they would hoist him up into the air by his feet so that all that was touching the ground was his head and his, barely his shoulders. And they'd leave him like that all night long. Many, many prisoners died. And uh, her devotion, I think, is a major reason why Adoniram survives. She pesters, she begs, she bribes the guards so she could provide food for her husband because the prison didn't provide that. So she does everything she can to get food to her husband. She somehow manages to get Adoniram his, his personal pillow, which she had sewn into his translation work on the New Testament. All the while, Nancy was nursing an infant and raising orphaned Burmese girls. Staggering to think about. 17 months he's in that prison. He actually gets moved, but it's 17 months, and he's finally released. Anne's health as a result of the ordeal was broken. She dies 11 months later, and six months after that, their two-year-old Maria dies. The effect of that on Ed Iron was immense. He goes into reclusion. He goes out into the jungle. He digs a grave and sits by it for months and just stares into it. He's broken. The jungle was tiger-infested. Many, many locals uh, feared for his life. They would be eaten. But when Ed Iron returns from his self-exile, everyone was amazed that he had even survived. 
Adoniram and Anne did not see a single convert for the first six years of ministry. Would you put up with a lot of that for six months, six years, without one convert? But God in his grace and his mercy, faithful to his word and his gospel, today, according to Patrick Johnstone, estimates there to be 3,700 Baptist congregations with nearly one million members in Burma or Myanmar including what's known as the Karen people, K-A-R-E-N, the Karen people. Google that sometime later today. It's a fascinating story, how the Lord uses Adoniram to reach this unreached people group, the Karen people. So the question that goes through my mind with all that, and I, I think would be going through your mind, is, man, what drove them to do that, right? What drove Adoniram and Anne? And we're not left to wonder. After serving there for eight years, his first wife, Anne, was very, very sick. She's sent home. They're separated for two years. And during the time, he writes a lot of letters. And here's one letter that he writes to her. He says, I, I wish, this is the letter he's writing, I wish I could always feel as I did last evening and have this morning. At first, on hearing this person's story, I, I felt much disheartened and thought, how pleasant it would be, he's saying this to Anne, how pleasant it would be if we could find some quiet resting place on earth where we might spend the rest of our days together in peace and perform the ordinary services of religion. You know, you hear what he's saying, right? He's been there for, for eight years. He's saying, man, how great it would be to just kind of crash somewhere, right? And, and spend the rest of our days in peace performing ordinary services of religion. But he says this, I fled to Jesus and all such thoughts soon passed away. Life is short, he goes on to say, life is short, happiness consists not in outward circumstances, millions of Burmans are perishing, I'm the only person on earth who has attained their language to such a degree as to be able to communicate the way of salvation. How great are my obligations to spend and be spent for Christ. Then he writes, what a privilege to be allowed to serve him in such interesting circumstances and to suffer for him. The heavenly glory is at hand. Oh, let me travel through this country and bear witness to the truth all the way from Rangoon to Ava and show the path to that glory which I am anticipating. He writes, oh, if Christ will only sanctify me and strengthen me, I feel that I can do all things. But in myself, I am absolute nothingness. And when through grace I get a glimpse of divine things, I tremble lest the next moment will snatch it quite away. Then he closes the letter to Anne this way. Let us pray, especially for one another's growth in grace. Let, let me pray that the trials which we respectively are called to endure may wean us from the world and rivet our hearts on things above. Soon we shall be in heaven. Listen to what he writes. Oh, let us live as we shall then wish we had done. There's a thought, huh? Let us live as we, soon we shall be in heaven. Let us live as we shall then wish we had done. Let us be humble, unaspiring, indifferent equally to worldly comfort and the applause of men. I love this. Absorbed in Christ, the uncreated fountain of all excellence and glory. That's what drove him. That last line. Humble, unaspiring, indifferent equally to worldly comfort and the applause of men absorbed in Christ. That's actually a, there's a word for that. I believe it started by a guy named Samuel Hopkins. I might be wrong on that. Double check me on that. But it's called disinterested benevolence. 
Don't you love that? Disinterested benevolence, right? Pastor Andrew, what in the world is that? What is disinterested benevolence? What Judson wrote right there is disinterested benevolence. But that, that philosophy, that was being taught a lot in the seminaries and the schools, and it, it drove missions in that day. It's what drove Judson to do what he does. It's the exact opposite of today. Today, we are obsessed with self. We are not absorbed with Christ. We are absorbed with self. Disinterested benevolence is the thought of self-sacrifice, no matter the cost, for the glory of Christ. Dis- the glory of God and the supreme worth of Christ. A disinterested benevolence is being disinterested in my own good and being completely preoccupied with the good and the worth and the glory and the majesty of Christ. And what we need today is a revival of disinterested benevolence. Amen? A few of us believe that. We need a revival of this disinterested benevolence, a revival of death to self, death to my wants, death to my desires, a a revival of indifference to worldly comfort and the applause of men, a a revival of being absorbed in Christ. Yes, this Christ-entranced vision of all things who alone is worthy, a revival of utter abandonment to the supreme worth of Jesus Christ, a life lived not for my my happiness or my safety or my security, but a life lived where we are pursuing and have security and safety and happiness in Christ and Christ alone. And imagine a church, imagine Christianity set on fire by the excellency and the glory of Christ with this disinterested benevolence where it's not about us. We're dying to self and we are absorbed in Christ. On another occasion, Judson himself asked this, what then is the prominent, all-constraining impulse that should urge us to sacrifice in this cause? And here's how he answers, a a supreme desire to please Christ is the grand motive that should animate Christians. Disinterested benevolence. Orangeville Baptist Church, is Jesus worthy? Is he worthy? Wow, that's not good. Is he worthy? Is the future of this world in his hands? It is, isn't it? Does he command our destiny? He does. We saw that in our text. Has he conquered Satan, death, and sin? He has, right? Remember that word, Nike? He's conquered, he's prevailed, he's overcome. Did he ransom a people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation? He did. Will the world end in his glory? It will. It absolutely will. Let's make that more personal. Is he worthy of your love and your life and your service? Is he worthy of death to self and death to your wants and death to worldly comforts and and death to all those things? Is he worthy of being all absorbed, all preoccupied? He is. Have you turned from your sin and trusted in him? Will you take up your cross and follow him whatever the cost? Are you willing to live for him and die for him? Is he worthy? Is he worthy? Maybe you're younger, like Ann Arm Judson, maybe in your early 20s, late late 18, 19, 20, early 20s, and God's working on your heart to be a full-time missionary. That, that's wonderful. 
pursue that disinterested benevolence, live for the, the, the pursuit of Christ. There was a young woman who felt called to missions who one day wrote back to her pastor uh, and wrote this. She said, Pastor, if you're reading this, I'm not coming home. No regrets. His glory is my reward. We all need that heartbeat, don't we? His glory is my reward. Death to self, death to worldly comforts and amusements. His glory is my reward. I'm not coming home. Maybe you're older, retired. You could always consider missions as a, as a second career. We can all be praying. We can all be praying for our missionaries. You just saw in the video about that 1040 window, a great prayer reminder is to get out your phone and set a reminder for 1040 a.m. and 1040 p.m. to remind you to pray for the 1040 window. Pray for those unreached people groups. Pray that God would raise up an army of men and women who would risk all like Adnarm Judson for the supreme worth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray and plan that the Lord would move mightily for his namesake and fulfillment of Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. Pray for uh, all to see the supreme worth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do uh, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we thank you for saving us from our sin. We say with the angels here, worthy are you to take up the scroll. Uh, worthy are you to open its seals. Lord Jesus, we, we praise you for you were uh, slain, and by your blood you have conquered. By your blood you have prevailed. Uh, by your blood you have won the victory. You purchased us. You, you've paid the penalty for my sin and, and for our sin. And thank you for this blood that, that covers and washes away the guilt and the shame of sin. And Father, we ask for all glory to be uh, to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lion and the Lamb who saved us from our sins. And Father, we pray that this salvation, the, the ransoming blood of Jesus, would be known among the peoples of the world, every tribe and people and language. We think of these, these 7,000 people groups. And this promise of, of Revelation 5.9, and we pray for the gospel to spread quickly to these people. And Father, we, we pray that you would do that. We pray that you would use our lives here to, to help bring that about, to be part of that movement of yours, that purpose of yours, where you're, you're moving all things to, to Revelation 5.9 and help us, Lord, move within us to be a part of that movement. Use our resources. Use, use whatever we have, our, our, our people, or whatever you've given us, Lord. Help us to sacrificially use them for your praise, for your glory, for the worthiness of Christ, for this gospel that's unconquerable, this gospel that cannot be stopped. God, we, just, we pray in light of Revelation 5.9 and the worthiness of Christ that you would work that deep into our hearts, work within us a deep, disinterested benevolence, work within us a deep absorption in Christ. We just pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.